0: Hello, everybody. What's up, what's up? Happy Monday, May 30th. If you are celebrating or observing the holiday in the United States of Memorial Day, happy Memorial Day. Um, Otherwise, I hope you guys are having a good Monday and end to the month of May. So welcome back to another episode of Space Talk. This is episode 81. And I am very excited to to kind of uh, share with you all what I've put together for this week's must-see celestial events, different astronomical events that are happening. Uh, Just a heads up, there are four deep sky objects visible within days apart. So um, definitely a good week if you can find an area where there is, yeah, just favorable weather conditions, favorable uh, light pollution minimization as well. Uh, So hopefully you can get out and check some of the stuff out. But firstly, I just wanted to say hello, hello. um, we should be publishing soon the episode with Space but Messiers founder Tony uh Bernardo, who's going to be um of pub- our episode should probably be published sometime today or tomorrow. Uh, I just haven't had a chance to actually like go through it um and just sort of, you know. I, I haven't spent too much time uh like thoroughly editing through a lot of uh the episodes. I'll kind of just like keep it as stream of consciousness as sort of the way that we think through things when we talk and stuff. But maybe I'll I'll cut out some ums and pauses here and there. Uh I actually had quite a bit because that was a really fun conversation and it got my uh my my brain wheels turning, that's for sure. Um so uh just a heads up, I am going to, I'm going to try and still do quite a lot of episodes here um, on Space Talk. Uh, Might be doing a little bit less as I move into both my second certification for Bar, um, which actually starts this week. And on top of that, uh, with returning back to school and doing uh, online classes, it's going to get pretty pretty hefty soon. Um, No actual news to share just yet uh, in regards to that, but fingers crossed for uh, a couple programs I applied to. So once that starts to pick up, uh, that that will end up taking precedence. So just a heads up, um, if you do end up seeing a little bit less episodes, that is why. Okay, so jumping into this week's stuff, uh, let's kick it off with astronomy term of the week. I think I might have used this term before, but I wanted to repeat it again just uh, for any new subs uh, and just in case, I don't know, could be a helpful reminder. I went with the word astronomical unit. So one AU is the, the, so just the number one, one astronomical unit is the distance between the sun and the earth. Very important distance to understand, uh, because if we can't figure out our own distance to our host star, then how can we figure out any other planet's distance to each other or to us? Um, so this was a, a really cool and very important, uh, calculation uh and 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 a discovery of what our distance actually was and it turns out to be approximately for my uh imperial unit friends uh 93 million miles and for all my other worldwide friends who follow the metric system that's uh, about 150 uh million kilometers so so really Really, like, you know, lot, lots of distances compared to here on Earth, really kind of far. But, um, you know, space-wise, uh, not not that far at all, because you might end up seeing astronomical units used for tons of different things uh, when it comes to distances in space. And you might end up seeing things like, you know, the distance between here and there is, you know, millions of astronomical units, which is crazy, because if you put that in perspective of, you know, 1AU being you know, about 93 million miles or 150 million kilometers, Uh, that's now bringing it into the trillions. So lots and lots of zeros, lots of great distances. Um, But this is helpful rather than using all of these zeros and measuring things throughout space using our earthly distances, such as kilometers and miles, which would get really tricky when measuring other distances. So this is also helpful to measure what the other planets are as well. Uh The planets that are closer to the sun are less than 1 AU. The planets further away from the sun are greater than 1 AU. So we kind of set that as our standard distance. Okay, so must-see celestial events. June 1st to the 4th at dusk, so just about one hour after sunset, you have the moon passing through the constellation Gemini looking west for... um This is for some of my friends over here in uh, North America region, Uh, but it should look relatively uh, about about the same, depending on kind of where you are in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, Maybe it might be off by a few degrees, but either way, you should be able to catch that thin crescent moon, which is now transferring out of new moon and into first quarter. So starting from June 1st, which is in in two days, it's going to be a pretty thin crescent moon just below the star caster which is in that constellation Gemini. It might be a little tricky to see um, the first few nights, but by June 3rd, it's going to be already further up in the sky um, above Gemini. So if you know you had any type of obstruction lower on the horizon, by June 3rd and the 4th, you'll be able to see this uh, a lot easier. But if you are able to see the horizon, you should also be able to catch a really cool view of Procyon, uh, which is this... Uh, in bright star in Canis Minor constellation, which is just below where the moon will be and to the left of Gemini. So this is uh, what you guys will be able to see. So you're going to want to be able to pa- Oh, for if, if you received my weekly transmission, <laughs> I put the word hemisphere instead of horizon. Sorry about that. I said facing your Western hemisphere. That makes no sense. Um, I met your Western horizon an hour after sunset. So my bad. Okay, then on June 7th, I went ahead and I uh, captured an image of the Austin night sky, of what that's going to look like on an interactive sky chart. And a few things to note is the moon is going to be in the constellation Leo, which is right next to the bright star Regulus facing west. All right, let's get into these deep sky objects because that's where all the fun stuff is. So for June 2nd until the 7th, there are four deep sky objects, and they are all globular clusters. So big, big star clusters. The biggest star clusters that exist are globular clusters filled with all of those really old, old stars. So redder stars, orange-ish stars. You might see blue stars as well uh, from just new star formation happening. But, um the majority of these stars uh, have lived very long lives and uh, these clusters can get up to 10 billion I believe was was about the cap the, 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 the of the the most stars that have been observed in a globular cluster so or estimated to be uh so on June 2nd uh the Hercules is globular cluster is the first one that'll be visible. This is going to be in both the northern and southern hemisphere, but only between latitudes of 36 degrees north and 33 degrees south. So I had to do a little bit of uh kind of yeah, p- punching in different locations when I was drawing up this information. So um if you don't know what your, what your latitude is, uh, you can easily find that. I've mentioned the source a few times on here, but in case you are new, you can head to geodatos.net, G-E-O-D-A-T-O-S.net, net. Uh, and you can put in your city and you'll find out what your longitude latitude are. Okay, so if you're in this area where you're able to see it, um, this object also goes by the name of M13 in case you're using a star catalog to look this object up. So if you're looking in the Messier catalog, it is M13. If you're looking in the new general catalog, it goes by the number 6205. And this cluster is at a magnitude of 5.8. So it's not visible without a telescope or binoculars. Uh, So you'll definitely need uh, some equipment, but also ideal viewing. So Northern Hemisphere, it starts to rise just around 9.30 p.m. Central Central Time. So this is, I put in my location. And it'll be about 41 degrees above the northeastern horizon. Once it starts to reach its highest point, it's going to be pretty ideal. So you might want to stay up late for this one. At about 1.30 a.m., it'll be 83 degrees above the northern horizon. So 83 degrees is looking basically right overhead. So that should be pretty awesome uh, for optimal viewing. Southern hemisphere, it starts to rise around 8.15 p.m. local time. Because of this limitation between the latitudes, I put in Ecuador. So I chose a location that was within the parameters of visible viewing um, because my usual location of Santiago, Chile was beyond visibility. It would not have been able to see this cluster. So Ecuador, um, I put in that location. So it's going to start to rise about 8.15 p.m. local time, uh, 21 degrees above the northeastern horizon starts to reach its highest point just after midnight of 51 degrees above the northern horizon. So similar story for the next one. Uh, On June 3rd, it's also a globular cluster that's going to be kind of like limited in its its visibility. Uh, It's going to have more... Excuse me. More more visibility. There was a, another one that was actually a little, bo- little bit more limited between the two hemispheres. So this next one is M12, which is a globular cluster in um, Ophiuchus. Ophiuchus is a constellation, and the latitudes for this one between the north and south are 61 degrees north and 71 degrees south. So wide wide range here of planet Earth of, of the globe of what. Um, of who's able to actually see this globular cluster. Um, So you're going to be able to see this in many locations. So at a magnitude of 6.7, even more dim than the previous one, the Hercules globular cluster, Uh, again, you're going to need some equipment to be able to see this uh, globular cluster. But if you're able to see it, northern hemisphere it starts to rise about the same time as the previous cluster, about 9.30 p.m. Central about 25 degrees above the eastern horizon. And then it reaches its highest point, once again, around 1.30 a.m. and about 57 degrees above the southern horizon. And for those in the southern hemisphere, it starts to rise pretty early, actually about 7.40 p.m. So pretty, pretty early. And it's going to be only about 21 degrees above your eastern horizon. So you might not be able to see it. So maybe wait until it reaches its highest point at 12:20 a.m. local time of 89 degrees above the northern horizon. 89. It's basically basically it's a right angle. Basically it's 90 degrees. It's going to be directly overhead. Uh this is probably the most uh yeah, just optimal ideal viewing. You you would probably ask for uh so you could just lay down and then point the telescope up at the sky or grab your pair of binoculars and you can see that globular cluster. Okay, our final two deep sky objects visible this week, once again, are both globular clusters. So those really massive clusters with tons of stars, the biggest star clusters that exist in our universe, and the oldest, as they contain quite a lot of old stars. June 6th, this globular cluster is known as M10. So if you recall, the previous one was M12, the one before that was M13, So they all were discovered right around the same time since they all have kind of sequential numbers. They're located in certain regions of the sky. So this one is M10 in Ophiuchus. This is also going to be visible in the north and southern hemispheres. So latitude of 65 degrees north all the way down to 74 degrees south. If you're in the northern hemisphere, it'll start to rise at about 9.30 p.m. Central Time. About around 25 degrees above your eastern horizon, but stay up late until about 1.30. It's going to reach an altitude of about 55 degrees above your southern horizon. For the my friends in the southern hemisphere, uh, for this one I put in Santiago, Chile. It starts to rise about 8.16 p.m. local time, only 21 degrees above the eastern horizon. Once again, wait until it reaches its highest point It'll probably be a lot easier to see. It's going to reach a high point of 60 degrees above the northern horizon. So that's about six of your fists stacking on top of each other from the horizon as you head up, aiming to bring your arm overhead. And that'll be at about 1240 a.m. local time. Okay, our last globular cluster of this week to conclude the week two is going to be on June 7th. And this one is globular cluster M62. So a little bit later, uh, a little little bit bigger number here. Uh, Also, though, found in the constellation of Ophiuchus. So M62, this Messier object, probably was discovered a little bit later in Charles Messier's time, or possibly by one of his colleagues who may have discovered it. Uh, It's visible in both the northern and southern hemispheres as well. So yay, northern hemisphere starts to rise pretty late later than the other ones, around 11 PM. It's only gonna be about 21 degrees above your southeastern horizon. This one doesn't reach pretty high. This one only goes up to about 29 degrees above your southern horizon, and this will be about one thirty. So not really the best viewing for the Northern Hemisphere, but for my friends in the Southern Hemisphere, um, for this one, I put in Santiago, Chile again, And this one, if you stay up late, it'll be really helpful. Uh, So I'll still mention when it rises, which will be early, about 7, 12 p.m. local time, 21 degrees above the eastern horizon, reaches its highest point, just around 1241 a.m. of 86 degrees above your northern horizon. So now 86, once again, really high up, almost at that right angle, Imagine 90 degrees is directly overhead. That's also known as the zenith. But again, if you want to use your fists as a distance, as a, as a format of understanding distance in the sky, hold it out at arm's length from your index knuckle to your pinky knuckles, about 10 degrees in the sky. This is about an average adult fist size. Holding it out and stacking it from your horizon all the way up overhead, that is The best way you'd be able to try to do some measuring, unless you prefer to use a a digital telescope or some kind of scope where you're able to put in its specific coordinates in the form of right ascension and declination, which is basically the longitude, latitude of space objects. Okay, so that is about everything for deep sky objects. Uh, That's everything for also our musty Celestial Events. Next up, we've got the moon phase and our space history, but I'm going to go ahead and take a break and look at the chat as well as prompt us a question because I just realized I didn't do that. So thoughts, thoughts, thoughts. Let me think of a think of a question. I'll read through this comment first. Um, oh, awesome. Dormy, I am in New York and just got here. What time would I be looking at this? Thank you. Oh, that is awesome. So um, for you, let's see. Each of these objects, they do all rise around different times. Um, But let's see. So they are, I don't know if you're a subscriber to my weekly transmission or not, but if you wanted to subscribe, you could just get the written format of this. might be a little bit easier. Um, Or you could just re-listen back to this episode again. But for New York, uh, that's also going to be following just around the same times listed here, but just calculate the difference for the the time zone. So New York is uh, one hour ahead of central daylight time. So uh, for each of these, you're going to want to just add in that extra hour um, and you should be able to to see some of these. I hope you get to do some observations. Hopefully you're able to get away from the light pollution in the city, Uh, but otherwise... Good luck. Um, I think it'd be really cool. Um, another tip is if you don't have a like any type of stargazing app, that'd be pretty helpful. Um, just to go ahead and, you know, type in the specific object you're looking for. So each of these were globular clusters. Um so if you just type in that word, I bet it, it would probably pop up. Globular cluster. Just type that in the chat. And awesome. Just subscribed or followed, I believe. Okay, perfect. I'm out. Half north of Midtown. Oh gosh. Okay. Well, you are going to be, yeah, definitely uh, struggling with some light pollution there. Um, I, when I was uh, living in the city, I was over Midtown East and went all the way out to the water, thinking like the East River, thinking of probably be a little bit better, more ideal conditions for observing the sky. But you got all that light pollution coming in from um, Brooklyn and Queens go over to the hudson river you got all the light pollution coming in from jersey and you have the big dumps out in jersey so it's not really helpful either because what will end up causing a lot of smog um so what i recommend for you would be to either get uh uh, if if you're able to get on any rooftop that can almost look beyond some of the light pollution with a pair of binoculars that might be one of your your best bets um because even if you were to go to like say Central Park or something, which I don't even think is open after after hours and could be pretty sketch um, i I don't know if you'd be able to still get beyond the light pollution then you'll have all these trees in the way, so it might be a little tricky. Uh, one more suggestion is to maybe check out Columbia University because they have uh, different astronomy outreach events happening, and I think they might have started them again, and so you might be able to. Be lucky enough where they set their telescopes up to point at some of these objects. So have fun. Enjoy enjoy New York. Okay, moving into our moon phase this, this week. We have June 7th at about 1048 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time is the first quarter moon. So take advantage of that, that very thin crescent we have right now or new moon. Actually, I think the new moon is tomorrow. Um, so this is a really good time to look for the Milky Way. This is a really good time to look for deep sky objects as well because you don't have that that moonlight to dodge. Um which by the way, moonlight is just reflected sunlight in case we didn't know that, but uh just always always fun to mention that. Um so yes, uh that is the moon phase. Okay. Let's move into our space history. We've got a few different space history events here and something I kind of did did, did a little bit silly is um the first space history event is June second, eighteen fifty eight. The first comet was photographed, and what did I do? I uploaded a photo that is not a real photo. I uploaded an artist rendition um, <laughs> of Comet Donati. So uh, this was this this was actually taken by Giovanni Battista Donati, and it was named Comet Donati C eighteen fifty eight L one. So I'm going to go ahead and look up this comment, get the real picture, and then I'm going to share it with you guys here. And uh if you guys do want the weekly transmission in your email inbox, you can head to astroathens.com and you can subscribe to um, to my email newsletter. I do refresh and add in new uh subscribers every week. So whenever I get new um, people subscribing, I will just take the email addresses and add it into my um, my subscriber list for my weekly trans- transmission so you could receive this in your inbox. Okay, so let's try to find the actual picture, real photo. I want to find the original picture of Comment Donati. No way. Okay, this looks like it's probably it because it's very black and white. Oh, yeah, this is pretty cool. Okay, so here, I'm going to share this link if you guys want to check it out. This is Comet Donati. All right, so that's that's really cool. This was in Naked Eye Object in the Victorian Skies. Um, I wonder if it has any other information about this, like how it was taken. Either way, looks really cool, and that was June second, eighteen fifty eight, was the first photograph of a comet. Okay, then June fifth, seventeen sixty four, the Trifid Nebula was discovered. The Trifid Nebula was the first nebula that I actually ever took pictures of um, using my Unistellar scope, and uh, such a such a cool object to image. Um, pretty easy to find as well. It's usually located pretty higher in the sky. Uh, it's also known as M20. So if you're looking that up in the Messier catalog, um, that it will be go by the, the catalog number of M20. And of course, because it is Messier 20, uh, it, it is in the Messier catalog. It was also discovered by Charles Messier himself. June 6, 1761, astronomers watched Venus transit the sun for the first time, hoping to determine the distance from the earth to the sun. So that's why I I mentioned, uh, the astronomical unit. Um, and actually I'm going to go ahead and look up because I don't actually know this. And I feel like if I were you guys, I would ask myself this question and be like, okay, well, did they discover the distance? And, when was the AU calculated? So the AU is what we mentioned today um, as the astronomy term of the week, which was, how, which was the astronomical unit. It's the distance between the earth and the sun. And I am curious of how they did this and how the calculation happened. So I'm going to go ahead and check that out. If anyone happens to know it, please do share it with me. I don't know this off the top of my head. I'm sure it was taught in Astronomy 101, but I haven't taken that in a really, 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 really long time. So I actually don't quite remember um, how it was introduced and how it got calculated. And if it was due to the transit of Venus back in 1761, which by the way, I don't think they had any type of solar filter for their telescopes or binoculars back then or any other observation equipment. So when they were observing the sun, uh, it probably was not really that good for for their eyes, Um, which reminds me of something. I kind of went down this deep dive of the Medici family recently, and um, I was not aware that Galileo was protected by the Medici family. And he was, I think, maybe their first scientists and philosopher who they actually had um because they they contributed money to the arts uh so they were like hiring artists it was the first time that they really um the society really started to like hire artists not just to like make creations for the family like portraits and stuff but actually just create art and just fund them and so this was the first time that that Art art really received funding uh, directly. And they, they were bankers. Um, it was a really long story. I'm not going to get into it. You can watch the, the series yourself if you want. I think it's on Netflix is where, where we watched it. But what's was interesting was um, Galileo was was protected by the Medici family. And when the Inquisition was happening and um, tons of people, even his colleagues, were were killed brutally uh, because of them proposing things. Actually, Bruno was, was one who was killed brutally, who – had proposed that the universe is infinite, and Galileo, uh, the way he brought up uh, the the heliocentric model um, of of saying, you know, he's like, I really do think that the Earth does orbit the Sun. Uh, he did it in a cot life. It was more of like a not a scientific publication, but like a um, it was a dialogue between like two people like two individuals. It's really cool. Um, and so basically it was like, he tried to make it as if it was a fictional story. So he could be like, Oh, well, it's just a fictional story. It's not like, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying this is real or not. And so basically by him saying that and him then pleading to the church saying, Oh, like I promise I don't actually believe this to be true. It's, you know, we are the center of everything saved his life because otherwise he would have been killed. Um, uh, but then he was put on house arrest and, uh, that and all the financial backing as well, uh, the protection of the Medici is actually what I think allowed or what everyone sort of uh, historians will say is that's probably what led to him not being killed as well and just being put under house arrest, which he ultimately ended up dying anyway, um, you know, being being under house arrest. But uh, I just thought that was interesting. And one more thing is the Galilean moons I never heard of as being called the Medici stars And so he had actually named these moons after the four brothers of the Medici family that he knew. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. And I, I like looked this up and I'm like, how come I never learned this? I never learned this in astronomy 101. Like, I don't, I don't remember this coming up every, I mean, all the times I've learned about Galileo through YouTube videos, through books, through astronomy lectures, through classes, they never mentioned the Medici family. Um, I at least I've never come across it. It always was Galileo and this is his story and he was put on their house arrest and he um uh you know discovered the Galilean moons uh but never that he called them the Medici stars which I thought was really interesting. So that's that. Just want to mention that real quick to you guys um, which I thought was pretty interesting. The uh last space history event was on June 7th, 1965 was when Gemini 4 landed. This was in the Atlantic Ocean, uh, just about 725 kilometers east of Cape Canaveral, Florida. The Gemini 4 crew consisted of James A. McTivitt and Edward H. White II. Gemini 4 was the first mission to be controlled from mission control in Houston. So that's pretty cool. Um, This was was, uh, a pretty big moment, I think, just for uh, I guess, unpil- well, they were, I guess they were also are prepared to, to pilot, but just really unpiloted missions. Um, so this way it can be controlled from those on the ground, which I guess, it, I mean, it's technically still being piloted, just not being piloted by those on board. So yeah, I think still the, all of these, these, experiments and testing like I would have been so nervous and on edge if I was the astronaut who like was like oh this is uh the first mission where it's going to be controlled by mission control I- I'm not sure that's uh I don't know it's a lot of trust definitely is a lot of trust but it went well and um that's really exciting and uh, eventually I think that this is what started to lead towards autonomous vehicles and autonomous docking and spacecraft and landing and flying and everything, uh, such as. The Crew Dragon capsule, which, and even um, SpaceX rockets, ninety second countdown, autonomous um, booster landing, autonomous. It's all of it. Just it's it's all calculated by the computers. So that is about everything I wanted to mention today. Um, to kind of finish off for fun, I'm gonna go to Astronomy Picture of the Day, and oh, this is pretty funny. There okay. I very rarely will you go to Astronomy Picture of the Day, and which is one of my favorite websites, apod.nasa.gov. If you want to head to it, but very rarely is there ever a picture with clouds that aren't like molecular clouds, like nebulae. This is literally like just an astronomer's like nightmare. Just total clouds, just absolute clouds. It's like okay, I won't be able to see any stars tonight. That's okay, but it looks like a pretty cool sunset or sunrise. Let's read the description and find out. Red crepuscular rays from the eclipse. From an eclipse. That's a cool word. Crepuscular. I'm going to look up that word. Crepuscular. Crepuscular means resembling or relating to twilight. And for zoology of an animal appearing or active in twilight. How interesting. So twilight is when the sun is positioned uh, at a specific degree below the horizon, um, which would help us determine, like, no, like basically understand, like, okay, well, once we know the sun is set at 18 degrees below the horizon, the sky is about this dark. So uh, when is it dark enough for stars to start to be visible? That's called the astronomical twilight. Um... And that, and that, I believe, is the 18 degrees below the horizon. There's a nautical twilight where it's like 12 degrees below the horizon. There's another kind of twilight um, and not just the movie. But this says that what's happening behind that island, things both expected and unexpected, uh, expected perhaps the pictured rays of light called crepuscular rays originated from the sun. Unexpected, though, the sun was being partially eclipsed by the moon at the time. This was late last month. Uh, so that's pretty cool. Uh, the sun's rays are quite bright as they shine through the gaps in uh, below horizon clouds. And um, then it says that the crepuscular rays are quite red, like the result of an abundance of aerosols in Earth's atmosphere scattering away much of the blue light. Oh, well, that's that's not pleasant either. Oh, come on, a Why is this on here? Okay, I'm sure, I mean, it's, it's definitely a, a pretty view, and I do think it's actually quite a rare image. That's probably why they have that on here. Um, then it says a memorable scene featuring both the moon and sun, uh, super, super posed. Unfortunately, from this location, which is in Uruguay, looking toward Argentina, clouds obscured the eclipse, which wasn't completely unexpected. However, after packing up to go home, the beauty of bright red crepuscular rays emerged quite unexpectedly. Um, and then of course you have that island on the horizon. So yeah, so that's pretty cool. The amount of times that this caption said expected and unexpected is, is a, little, <laughs> a little bit crazy, but, uh, it's, it's pretty cool. Uh, so if you guys want to check that out, feel free to otherwise, um, you know, go to, go to Apod some other day. Uh, this is really awesome. Um, I just went to their archive real quick. Here's a, uh, a link eclipse sunset. So interesting. Yeah. So I see why, why it's, why it's on here now. It's, it's, I don't think I've ever seen a picture like that where there's an eclipse happening and there's a sunset. Imagine if those clouds weren't there, that probably would have looked really epic too, but it still looks really cool even with the clouds there. So this picture is Titan in front of Saturn's rings, which is really cool. Um, So it says... Titan's largest moon, Saturn's largest moon Titan is locked in synchronous rotation. So that means that the same side faces Saturn, just like our moon uh, always faces earth. So that every time that it's spinning, we are also spinning on our axis. And so we end up uh, just synchronizing with its rotation, hence only facing the same side to us all the time. And so this says that uh, this mosaic of images recorded by the Cassini spacecraft in May of 2012. Rest in peace, Cassini. Uh, it was a really cool space mission. It shows its anti-Saturn side, so the side that faces away from Saturn. Um And this is the only moon in the solar system with a dense atmosphere. Titan is the only solar system world besides Earth known to have standing bodies of liquid on its surface and an Earth-like cycle of liquid rain and evaporation. Its high altitude layer of atmosphere haze is evident in the Cassini view of the 5,000 kilometer diameter moon over Saturn's rings. So it's really cool because if you look at the picture, even though it's in black and white, you could see textures of the clouds from its atmosphere. Um, of this moon and then near the center is the dark dune filled region known as sangri la so that's what the that center part is i thought that was the clouds that is a dark dune filled region um and so uh, if you look you can see its atmosphere though if you're kind of looking around like just around the the whole outer edges of of the moon that's really cool Wow. That's actually really awesome. If you were to like really start to zoom in on that, you could see like a thin shaded line. This would be cool to sketch. If anyone's into like charcoal uh, artist work or artistry, this would be really, really cool to sketch. I might want to do this for fun. Um, it's been a really long time, but I love charcoal. Okay. All right. So that is about everything. Um, I hope you guys, um, enjoyed this episode. I hope you guys get to go outside and look up at the night sky. Hopefully you have clear skies, but let's just go ahead and just reconnect ourselves to the cosmos, learn a little bit of how to navigate using the stars. Um, not that, you know, you'll ever be stranded out on a, you know, desert island or out at sea, but you might be, you never know. Um, and so it could be useful to, to know these skills. Um, so I encourage you guys to go outside, look up the sky, either just enjoy it and be in a sense of wonder or learn a little bit about what, um, our, our sky can tell us more about us here on earth and our evolution and how we got here, where we're going and all that fun jazz. All right, everybody. Well, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Um, and of course, as always at Astra. All right. Bye guys. Talk to you later.